<laughs> oh, that was good. That was great. Thank you for stepping in to lead. And the teamwork is fantastic in this church. Absolutely. That I can get behind. Um, it's great that uh, we have so many leaders and so many people that are, that are involved in ministry that it just seems like wherever there's a gap, there's someone to step in and do a terrific job. Um, so this morning, uh, we're, we're starting a series uh, for life groups in February. And so uh, beginning in the middle of February, we'll be starting a new series where you'll be in your life groups, and it's going to be uh, a, a 12 or 14-week series um, on uh, the knowledge of the holy by Tozer. Yeah, it'll be good. Uh, but there's four sermons before we get there, and so uh, I want to do a little four-part mini-series on prayer. There's, there's kind of two areas I find on a regular basis that, uh, as disciples who are following Jesus and as Christians, uh, that we're always kind of swimming upstream against. And, and the first one is evangelism. We're always sort of pressing upstream against our efforts to evangelize and in our efforts to evangelize. And the second one, at least for me, and maybe I'm alone, is prayer. We are always pressing upstream in terms of our diligence in prayer. For some, it comes easily, just like for some, evangelism comes easily. But I think for most Christians, prayer is another area where we look back after a few weeks or a few months, maybe in a few years, and we realize, have we really been diligent in prayer? Have we really pressed in? Uh, are we really finding delight and joy in prayer? And is the health of my prayer life where it should be? And so at the beginning of a year, it just seems like a good time uh, when we're making resolutions to consider again where we need to be diligent and where we need to press in. And uh, uh, they say confession is good for the soul. And, and James says, confess your faults to one another. So this is a very self-indulgent series because I need to confess that my prayer life is in need of some fine-tuning. Right? Like, I, I pray when I'm here at church. I pray when I'm with people and they need prayer. I pray in circumstances when I'm asked to pray. Um, but in terms of where my prayer life is now from where it was, uh, you know, for the last several years, I would say it has dropped off. And, and I can blame COVID and I can blame busyness and I can blame this and that. But at the end of the day, I need to tune up my prayer life. And so this is a completely self-indulgent sermon series. I just thought, hey, I can get paid to help myself in my spiritual walk. (laughs) And I'm hoping that it will help you as well. Um, Because the reality is, is that prayer is something that God has given us, is something that is unique in our relationship with God, that we can uh, come into his presence. It's meant to be delightful, but it's also something that we're meant to be diligent in. And if, if prayer doesn't have that sort of profoundly delightful, joyful, transformational place in our lives, um, then that can start to cause problems. And for many Christians, both old and new, our, our life becomes a reflection of our prayer diligence and our prayer neglect. If, if we neglect prayer, um, some of these things happen. We begin to feel powerless over events or things around us, and from time to time we, we question the, the character of God. And, and our life always seems to be unsettled and unstable. 
and our efforts at anything spiritual keep failing, and God seems far, far away, and, and you haven't really heard him speak to you lately, and, and the Bible has stopped making sense, or at least the Bible doesn't seem to be speaking into your life anymore. And, and everything in ministry feels like work. It feels like it's your own effort. And, and you start to experience doubts about God and your faith. And, and, and there's relational conflict around you. Interactions with other people become more and more difficult. And there's a lack of forgiveness and grace and often conflict and confusion. And, and the other thing, too, is that other Christians that you meet seem to think and feel differently than you do about their faith in their God. They seem to have all this joy and confidence and hope, and you wish you had what they had. But now if we were to replace infrequent, haphazard, kind of uncertain prayer life with confident, thoughtful, diligent prayer life, then these things start to happen. Your intimacy with God begins to increase, and you gain clarity and insight into your circumstances, and your life becomes more stable and settled, and your confidence in God grows, and you feel hopeful, and reading the Bible and sitting under God's teaching is exciting, and you want to learn more, and your understanding of God fills you with joy, and you love to serve in ministry because it revitalizes you. And you begin to gain victory over sin, and your actions towards others frequently result in restoration and encouragement rather than conflict and distance. And other Christians seem to have the same joy you do, and you get to share with them the joy and the love that you have in God. And you do not doubt God's love and care for you. And so that's the contrast that can come from our prayer life. And those of you that have experienced both the highs and the lows of your prayer life know what I'm talking about, because you've felt these things to greater or lesser degrees. And, and that's what I'm jealous for for myself. That's what I'm jealous for for you, that we, that we would be on the, the right-hand column here, and that we would be experiencing as a church and as a body uh, the joy and the transformation and the growth and the healing and the hope that comes from prayer. But quite often what happens is when we're thinking about this and we're thinking about our prayer life, just as when we sometimes think about evangelism, we start to think kind of guilty thoughts and we start to think that it's up to us. Like, I just have to grip my teeth and I got to bear down and I just got to be better at prayer. But I thought, as, as sort of I was there too, it's better that we remind ourselves that prayer does not ultimately begin with us. Prayer does not ultimately depend on the force of our will or our diligence. And instead, as the first part of this little mini-series, remember that prayer starts with God. And that as we go into this series and we seek to uh, delight more in prayer and be more diligent in prayer, that we will start here, that we'll start with God. And I'm just going to pray before we open his word. Father God, we thank you. Uh, as your disciples, as your children, as your body, Father, that, that, that we just have this amazing connection that's happening right now as I pray, that, that we come into your presence, that we come into your throne room, that we get to commune with you, that we get to communicate with you, that you've asked us to talk to you, and that you listen and so, Father, as we do the next few weeks on prayer, help us individually uh, to press in to the delight and the joy and the hope and the growth and all the good things that come out of prayer. Help us together as a church corporately to press into this. 
And, uh, and Father, that we rejoice that this, is a, that this is a house of prayer, that this is a praying church. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So first of all, we just recognize right off the bat that it starts with God. And the first thing there that we recognize is that when we pray, our God is a God who is there, as Francis Schaeffer said. We're not praying to an empty universe. We don't believe in a philosophy of nature or energy. It's not an empty wooden carving or a stone shrine. But God is really there. Lots of people pray. Hindus pray, Buddhists pray, pagans pray, pantheists pray. Even people who only believe in the positive karmic energy of the universe pray. You know, they will the universe to bless them by sending out positive thoughts. Agnostics often pray. Even atheists eventually pray. Up to 30% of them once a month or more, according to a Washington Post article. I don't know who they're praying to, but they pray. Lots of people pray. But who is it? Is it the God that is there? The prophet Elijah is a very famous confrontation with some priests of the supposed god Baal. And you can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 18. And and there on the mountain, the challenge was made. Whose god was real? Whose god would send fire to the altar? And the priests of of Baal danced and called and prayed and cut themselves until blood covered them. And from morning until noon until evening. but, But Baal couldn't answer because he's not a real god and he's not there. But Elijah's god is there. And and he listens. When, when Elijah called to God in his prayer, fire fell and consumed the bull and the wood and the stones and the dust and the water. So God is there and God listens to our prayers. Jesus actually gave his disciples a reminder of, of God hearing one time when he prayed in front of Lazarus' tomb. He says in John eleven forty one, he says, Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe you sent me. Like, isn't that just an amazing little sentence that Jesus throws in there? (laughs) It's like, God, I'm just so glad that you heard me. I mean, I know you heard me. I just said that because of these people that were listening in. (laughs) You know, because I want them to know that you're a God that listens, that you're a God that heals. You're a God that sent me. I, I think it's amazing that he says that, that he, that he understands our weakness in wondering if God is there and God is hearing. And so he just encourages his disciples and all those people around him. God is there, God listens, and also God is for us. Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. It's fine that God's there. It's fine that God listens But that's not helpful if God isn't for us. And so we need to remember also that God is for us. He's for our hope. He's for our future. Romans 8, 31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so we just start very briefly with those three powerful truths. God is there, God listens, and God is for us. And prayer, like everything else in our faith, starts with God. It starts with God acting towards us. God's greatest demonstration of his initiative, his starting everything in our relationship, as we know, is Jesus, his son, who he sent to accomplish all of the law, all of his purpose in restoring our relationship with him. 
So in addition to God creating us, God restraining his wrath at our sin, God giving us his law to preserve us, God's promises towards his people, God's general and specific grace in the world, on top of all the activity of God towards his creation, there's Jesus. You have the sum of all God's loving, merciful action aimed towards us as a proactive action of God towards us. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Everything in our relationship with God is initiated by him. He started it all. He is the one who is doing. It's not our doing, it's his doing. And notice in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, that's Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God. For his glory. When we pray and we utter our amens, when we pray, it is because all the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at what Jesus has done for our prayer life, that God has initiated and that Jesus has accomplished so much for us to be able to pray. Prayer begins with God's initiative and it comes to us through Jesus. And very quickly, we, we could see that Jesus is an example to us in our prayer life. And I'm not going to dwell on this for the sake of time and also because we're going to talk about it in future messages. But Jesus modeled prayer for us. He prayed to know God's will. He prayed alone. He prayed in community. He prayed for his disciples. He prayed before meals. He prayed before big decisions. He prayed while facing life-threatening trials. All of those things, we can look to Jesus and say, Jesus modeled prayer. But I, I don't want to spend time on that. We're going to get to that because what I want us to see today is that Jesus is far more than just an example. Other faiths and philosophies have great teachers. They have great gurus. They have great examples that are respected for their teaching. But Christian prayer is not powerful because of what Jesus taught us or demonstrated or because of some formula that Jesus gave us. Christian prayer is powerful and effective because of what Jesus did to transform our relationship with God. And there's three things that Jesus did that I'm going to run through. He revives our spirit and gives us his spirit. He removes the barrier to God, becoming our one mediator. And he broke down old authorities and has granted us new authority. He's done more than that, but those are the three things I have time for in the next 20 minutes to tell you about. First, Jesus came to die the sacrificial death required of our sins and to rise again in new life as the promise of our new life in him. That if we repent and trust in his sacrifice, our spirit would be made alive and able to reconcile with God. And so that he could leave his spirit with us as well. So it's to revive our spirit and to leave his spirit. See, there's a, there's a problem that we face in our relationship with God. There's a problem that we face and would face drastically in our prayer life. It's our spiritual deadness that God has to rectify. Our spirit is dead and cannot respond or reach out towards God. We cannot pray from spiritual deadness. Colossians 2.13 says that we were dead in our sins and our flesh. Dead things take no action. They have no initiative. And so God has to take action in order to make the first move. And he had to fix the problem of our dead spirits that were unable to respond to him. Peter says that the purpose of the gospel of Jesus is to transform people who are dead into people who are spiritually alive in 1 Peter 4.6. And Paul says in Romans 8.10... 
He says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. There has to be new spiritual life if we're going to be able to pray. Because a, a, a person who is spiritually dead has no desire, no delight in prayer. And should they pray, God does not promise to hear them. God will always hear your prayers of salvation, but he has no promises for you apart from that prayer. And Jesus came not only to die to bring new spiritual life, but also to leave his Holy Spirit. Jesus explains much of this in John 14 and 16, but I'll just dip into 16, 7, and 13 here. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit there. And when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you on the things that are to come. So he's talking about his spirit. The spirit of truth is going to come. And so Jesus came to bring our spirits to life, and he came to leave his spirit with us so that his spirit might inhabit us and commune with us and be able to talk to God. And the Apostle Paul in Corinthians and Romans expands on this, explaining that the Spirit knows the very mind of God, and we too have the same Spirit as God in 1 Corinthians 2, 11 and 15. And so the Spirit intercedes for us as we pray when we don't know what to pray in Romans eight twenty six. And so by Jesus, we, we now have our own spirits made alive and the Spirit of God with us and in us. And that allows us to pray. Because apart from that, there is no prayer relationship with God. The second thing that Jesus does is that he removes the barrier to God and becomes our one mediator. When Jesus went to the cross and died in order to take on for himself the punishment of our sin and the shame of our misdeeds, the Bible records for us a very significant event that took place, which is a further symbol of what Jesus has accomplished for us in prayer. In Mark 15 Verse 38 says that his death on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, in order for us to pray as as children of God, as disciples of God, in order for us to talk to God, there was this barrier of our sin between us and God, and that had to go away. Jesus had to revive our spirit. He had to leave us his spirit, but he had to get rid of this barrier of our relationship And Jesus did that, and this this curtain tearing in the temple was the physical manifestation of a spiritual reality. Because of our sin, we could never enter into the throne room of God. We could never enter into the presence of God. And so so in the format of the temple, there was the the holy place where the the priests and the people could gather, but then there was the most holy place, the holy of holies, and there was a, a curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and the mercy seat, where the glory of God dwelled between the cherubim. And you couldn't go there. This curtain hung there. It was a division between God and man. And so when Jesus died, there was this tearing of that curtain. In the temple, physical reality mirrored spiritual accomplishment. And that great heavy curtain that stayed in place while the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God was in the temple was torn in two. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. See, there's a problem when we're spiritually dead. (laughs) There's a problem when we have this barrier. We can pray. Agnostics can pray. Atheists can pray. 
People can pray to God. He does not hear. He has no promises. I mean, God can do whatever he wants to do and will do according to his will, but he has no promises for people apart from the spirit of Jesus Christ. He'll hear their call to salvation. He promises that, that any who repent and believe will be saved, but he does not hear our prayers. Without Jesus, that veil would still be there. God on one side and us on the other side. God would be doing his will. He would be accomplishing his purposes, but he would not be doing it through our prayers. When Jesus died and and took on the sins of the world, the barrier, the veil was removed. It was torn. And at the same time, as Jesus was tearing that curtain and removing that barrier, he was also becoming our new intercessor, our new mediator, our singular representative to God. Through Jesus, we do not approach God by sacrifices anymore, or by high priests, or even by low priests, or any priests. Everyone has equal access to God by the one person that we love and cherish so much for this reason, Jesus Christ. We don't need the blood of bulls and calves anymore. We don't need Aaron or Joshua or any other high priest. We don't need a pope or a cardinal or a bishop. You don't need me to come into the presence of God anymore. You just need Jesus. He's our one mediator. Hebrews 4.14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Do you think the writer's talking about physically walking into the presence of God? No, he's talking about prayer. He's saying because we have Jesus, the one mediator, the great high priest, then let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus is the one mediator. Hebrews 8, 6 says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant, is what he's talking about. As the covenant he mediates is a better covenant since it is enacted on better promises. And so God, through Jesus, has done away with with bulls and lambs and goats and pigeons and feast days and sacrifices and high priests. He's done away with all of the old covenant, and he said, there's one new way to come into my throne room in confidence. I've torn the veil. You come through Jesus. And this new covenant has better promises. Paul says it to Timothy. He says, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. You see, this is what Jesus has done for our prayer life. Until Jesus came along, we were spiritually dead, and we had no Holy Spirit. We didn't have the Spirit of God. And Jesus revives our spirit. He makes us spiritually alive so we can commune with God. And then he gives us God's Spirit so that we can know God's will. And and that Spirit can pray on our behalf. And then... And then Jesus broke down this barrier of sin. He actually got us into the presence of God so that God could actually hear us by removing this barrier of sin when he died on the cross. He tore that veil. And then he became the mediator. He said, I will advocate for you. I will be the one in which and under whose name you say your amens. It will be in my name that you come into the presence of the Father. And so you will have full confidence in that throne room. You see... What I'm pressing into here is that when, when we start to falter in our prayer life, when, when you're like me and you, you start to realize that 
you know, we, my, our prayer life needs to recover. It needs to be restored. The point is not to focus on ourselves. The point is not to beat ourselves up and feel guilty. The point is not to grit our teeth and say, I'm just going to pray harder and it'll get better. What we want to do is we want to, as with everything in our Christian life, we want to turn our eyes towards Jesus and realize that he is the one that has done for us what we need for our prayer life. Put all of our hope and our confidence in him, that he is the one that has done this, and that God is the initiator of this relationship. And so that we can then lean into him and his presence and confidence in Jesus and in God and in their desire to have this relationship, in all that God has done and all that Jesus has done, so that we can pray, so that we can come into that throne room. We have a great high priest He sympathizes with us. He's an intercessor for us. We can have confidence in the throne room. We can have clean hearts, bodies washed. And we should hold fast to our confession and draw near and be assured in faith because of what Christ has done for us to pray. Ephesians 3, 11 to 12 says, According to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And that's what we want in our prayer life, right? That's, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for that confidence and that grace and that mercy and that feeling of peace and delight in coming before God. And that comes through trusting in Jesus and what he has done. So every time we come into God's presence, we are thankful for and we are covered by the accomplishment of Jesus. But finally... There's a third thing that Jesus has done. Bear with me a little bit here. Jesus has broken old authorities and granted us new authority. Because this is the other thing that we need when we pray. We, we need to know that prayer is effective, and we need to know that it's powerful. And we need to know that it's actually working. And again, even there, we look towards Jesus. We pray with confidence and we pray with authority because we are made alive and in right relationship with God through Jesus and the barrier has been removed and the throne of God is available to us and we have this mediator. All of that is true. But we also pray with confidence and authority because Jesus has broken us free of old authorities and granted us his authority. Firstly, in Jesus, sin no longer has authority over us. Romans 6.14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. That's important when we go to pray, to know that whatever sin is in our life, sins that are defeated and sins that remain, are still have no authority over us. Jesus has broken the authority of sin in our life, and that's why we can enter into the throne room of God. In Galatians 5.1, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery to sin. Don't, don't submit to that authority of sin. Don't submit to that slavery to sin because Jesus has broken that old authority and no longer has any sway over you. And we need to know that when we go into prayer, that our sin does not carry any authority over us, but we enter into the throne room of God by the grace of God. And we need not think about, or we need not uh, dwell on, we need not condemn ourselves because of our sin. Secondly, Jesus' death, because of Jesus, death has no longer has any authority over us. 
2 Timothy 1.10, our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Or 1 Corinthians 15.54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Amen, Amen indeed. You see, in our prayer life, our sin can drag us down and all the forces of death and evil and hatred can drag us down. And we can think that somehow our prayer is powerless because these, these things still hold sway over us. But, but when we pray, we need to remember that Jesus has accomplished something very important, that he has freed us from old authorities, that they are broken, that we are set free from those things. And then from that, we move on, and this is even more important, is that Jesus, we have renewed authority over all things. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 to 6 says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. You see, when we go into pray, and we pray confident, and we pray boldly, we're praying not as something that comes from us, not, not because of our sufficiency, but because of Jesus, because, because through Jesus we have been made sufficient. It's from God that we have been made sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. And we have renewed authority over all things. And it's interesting here because there's a restoring. There's a restoring of an authority that was lost. And I'll just, I'll just make this connection for you because I think it's important. You remember, if you go way back to Genesis, of course, um, when, when God created all of creation, and he created the birds of the air, and he created the, the stars, and he created the animals, and he created the forests, and he created all the earth and everything, and then he created mankind, Adam and Eve, and he gave us a, a job. He gave us one thing. He said, you have dominion over all of this. You have authority over all of this creation, right? And then, you remember in, in Genesis chapter, so we're supposed to have authority on, in Adam. And, and then in Genesis chapter 3, we rebel, we sin, we turn our backs on God. We think we're God. We know better than God. God's holding out us. We got a better idea. And in essence, God revokes that authority because all of a sudden creation has authority over us, right? Creation begins to impose on us pain in childbirth and thorns and toil and sweat and labor and ultimately we die and death gets authority over us. Creation and death then has authority over mankind. But then Jesus comes along and... and, and, and in Romans chapter 6, you can read this, and in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, you can read this. Jesus comes along, and, and Paul calls him the new Adam, the second Adam, the last Adam. Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus has come to restore our authority over all things. And, and Jesus has authority over all things, right? And so, so there's this idea that in prayer, not only, or in, in Jesus, not only has he destroyed the old authorities so that sin has no more authority over us and death has no more authority over us, but now he's renewed our authority. And he says, well, not us, not our sufficiency, but from God, he's made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. And then in 2 Corinthians 1.20, as we started out saying, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And in John 15.7, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You see, we have to understand in our prayer life that we have a new authority that's been restored by Jesus. He's broken all the old authorities and he's restored our authority in prayer. 
that it is powerful and that we are able to be mediators of this new covenant and that we can pray with the power of the Holy Spirit knowing that God listens. So as we begin this series on prayer, that's where we have to start. That's where I have to start. We have to start with God. Instead of focusing on our own effort in prayer, what I'd like us to do this week is just take a few days and do nothing but rejoice in and meditate on what Jesus has done for you and for prayer. Just remember that God has taken the initiative, that Jesus has done the work. He's the barrier breaker, the life giver, the spirit granter, the authority wielder. He's the one sacrifice, the one mediator. Let your new season of prayer flow from your delight and trust in what God and Jesus have accomplished to make our prayers possible and powerful. And as you begin to pray this week, just remind yourself as you pray that you have confidence to enter into the presence of God, that your sin is cleansed by his sacrifice, and that you are a trophy of his grace. You're not condemned under the law, and all improper Authority has been broken and lifted from your life in Jesus' name. And you now walk in new authority with Jesus and in the promises of God. Those are yours to be grasped and apprehended and made real in your prayer life with God. We have a great God who is there, a God who listens, a God who's for us, who more importantly took the initiative to tear down the veil and stood between us and his presence, and he gave us the gift of his spirit, and prayer is his idea, it's his initiative, he energizes it, he accomplishes it all through Jesus Christ. If our prayer as a church or your prayer as a follower is going to get renewed, it will start with God, and that's where we have to begin. Everything else that comes next has its roots in what God, through Jesus, has already done for us at the cross. Mercy, salvation, justification, sanctification, and even prayer. It all flows from Jesus. And so over the next few weeks, we're just going to keep pressing in. There is so much. I I had like eight sermons of material to talk about prayer, and I got four weeks to do it in. So I'm going to cut some things out, slim some stuff down. But for the next four weeks, we're just going to talk about prayer, and I want us to press in together as a congregation on prayer. We're going to talk about how we pray individually. We're going to talk about how we pray corporately. And I hope, and and I'm hoping to arrange that we'll have opportunity to pray corporately together uh, more than once and, uh, and just embrace this reality of prayer and how special it is, how unique it is, because we can enter into the throne room of God because of Jesus Christ, our one mediator who's done this and so many more things for our prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning that you are the God who's there, the God who listens, and the God who's for us. And we thank you especially for Jesus, who when we look at his advent, his coming, when we look at his life, when we look at his death and his resurrection, and we look at all the spiritual realities that he accomplished, we understand that there would be none of this prayer life if it was not for Jesus. He has accomplished everything to permit this for those who trust and believe in him. And so, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we put him at the center. We put the gospel of Jesus Christ at the center. We put the person of Jesus Christ at the center of every part of our Christian life. And that includes prayer. We put Jesus at the center of our prayer life because he has done everything to make a way for us to enter boldly and confidently into your throne room, 
to pray right now the things that we've prayed today for our missionaries, for this community, for the people, for our lives. He's done everything, including giving us most of all your Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit dwells in us that we might know your will and know how to respond and pray. And and when we don't even know how to pray, kind of like me right now, when I don't even know how to pray, your Holy Spirit is praying on my behalf. Prayers I can't even comprehend for these believers that are before me, for myself, for my family, for this community, for this world. Oh, Father, draw us into delight in praying with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.